welcome Christos. It's it's like a chat between three friends right now. It, honestly, like every single episode of the podcast that we have, it's like chat with friends. I love this. Love yeah. Love it. This yeah. is my yeah. favorite podcast format. It's like when you get to get in a room with somebody and it's the first time you maybe met them or you've, you know, had a brief interaction before, but then you really get to kind of dive into some good conversation. So I was excited to have you here, Christos. I think you heard one of our previous episodes and we wanted to get you on the show and um, hear about your career, uh, sure. hear about your uh, time at Microsoft and kind of what you're working on today mm-hmm. and what you're excited Perfect. about. What's getting you excited right now in your job? You guys are getting me excited. There you go. <laughs> Being here. That's fantastic. Yeah. Please, please don't stay in the corner of the party. Please come <laughs> hang out with us. Ask us questions. That's what this is all about. Don't uh, encourage so- me. Yeah. Careful. Right. Careful no, that's okay. For. Because we love when people talk more about their stuff. Because again, our listeners, they love to learn about different career paths. They like to learn about uh, what, you know, roadblocks and challenges you had to kind of go through to get where you are today. So I'll stop talking. Christos, uh, Mike is yours. Tell us more about yourself. Okay. Maybe uh, maybe we start with what I'm doing right now and then we do uh, a retro uh, retrospect. Totally great. Sounds started. like a good plan. Because I think yeah. it makes sense, right? Uh, how did we get here? Uh, so right now I work as a program manager, a developer advocate for the Microsoft Identity Division. Uh, I'm, me and uh, my partner in crime, JP, are responsible for the developer story of uh, Microsoft Identity. So anytime they have to authenticate users in your app, every time you have to um, implement something like CI/CD or remove secrets from your applications, there's all these facades that we have to uh, we try to educate developers about how to write more secure software. Uh, as secure as possible, obviously, but eliminating certain things like we don't want people to write their own authentication providers, right? If we can eliminate all that danger and let people carry on with their tasks, then my job is done. So right now, uh, I'm, I'm fairly new to the team. The team is fairly new as well. Uh, so we joined back in March, both me and JP, with a few days difference, and we'll be building the team slowly to, to be what it is today. And it's really exciting because I get up every morning and I get to do the things I love and I'm passionate about. So it's it's more than a job, it's a hobby. Just don't tell my manager because he's actually paying me for this, which I don't <laughs> think is good. But, uh, you know, finding that uh, sweet spot in your career is uh, fantastic. So uh, with that, I want to take a little bit of a journey back to how I got to be where I am to be today and uh, explain how it started. So for uh, for people that haven't followed me in my career or they haven't seen what I've done, I started fairly late uh, in IT. I was a very late bloomer. I didn't grow uh, around PCs, although I was always fascinated by PCs. And at some point in my career path, I actually did a lot of uh, classical studies at school. And the dream was actually to become an interpreter in the European Union because I come from Europe. And I, I knew well two languages or well enough to be an interpreter. But um, when I looked at the studying and getting that i found that the circle was becoming very small and i also had the foresight to think that computers will be intelligent enough one day to replace humans in that space so today you can actually pass a you know text or live live speech and get real-time translation in multiple languages in fact skype that we're using right now can do that for you so it's it's fascinating that you know i was going to study something that would be eliminated and i was like no oh, maybe maybe i should rethink and at that point in my career i was like i was 21 and i said to myself what do I really like to do? Like, if I could choose right now, what would I do? And uh, it dawned to me, I want to be a hacker. That was the plan. I want to uh, hack. I-, I would be a white hacker, not a black hat hacker, right? A good, one of the good guys protecting systems. So I was like, okay, why do I need to do that? I need to obviously know how to write code. So let's go and get a degree in 
in software engineering. So I went and studied software engineering for three years. And then I was like, you know what? I need to know about networks. So how about if I do a master's in uh, master's degree in networking? So I went and did a master's degree in networking. So Cisco, routers, switches, VPNs, firewalls, all the Saban certified in Cisco. And I was like, you know what? I like I like writing software more than actually playing with networks. And it seems too centralized as well. Like if you if you are working for a big company today, and uh, in the last twenty years actually, most of the hardware is managed centrally from one central location. You can reboot stuff. You can control and push patches out. So there was not a lot of um, career advancement and development in that space. It also almost felt quite small, where software, you can do anything. Like so many languages, so many different tools, and we always need software. So we went back into writing software. My first job was a scary one, where I joined a manufacturing company that print labels for all the wine bottles and whiskeys that you see out there. They actually had about 80% of the global market in one small place somewhere in Glasgow. So my first job was to um, rewrite all their software from Access, Yes, that's right. MS Access uh, into VB.net. I don't know if that choice was good or not, but how much VBA that, was there? There was a lot of VBA there, and there I were a imagine. lot of issues. Oh yeah, it was it was technically copying the VBA into VB.net, right? Which made and, so much sense. And like. how big was the software team that you were coming into? I don't imagine it was super big or robust, or was it well, small? Or back then, um, it was. Uh, there were two people before I joined the team, uh, the main software guy and the sales guy that picked up software as he was going. So they had one main person writing most of the software. And then they said, hey, who here on the floor likes to write software or wants to write software? So they taught the other guy how to write software. And then the first guy obviously found a better gig. So he left. So the main programmer, the, the main guy that knew how to write code, um, left. And I joined the team to help support uh, my other friend, David. We became friends. We worked together side by side for a year. But he was not a, development was not his core skill. And although that's not bad because the, the people I work day in, day out these days, most of them don't really have a heavy software engineering degree. Some of them come from music degrees or science or maths, right? You don't have to be, you know, you, have, you don't have to have studied uh, software engineering. However, uh, when you join a very small team with not a lot of experience, a lot of bad practices start happening. So uh, just to give you some examples, I mean, I, I actually gave a talk on that at NDC one day about all the mistakes I've done in my career, and 90% were in that job. So uh, we were writing code in production. There was no uh, dev or QA environment. We were pointing to the live database. Hence, one day I wiped out 15,000 records from our invoicing system. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and then we were the backups were all in some random files. We did not have a solid backup scenario. So restoring a backup file, I was like, "Hey, David, when was the last time that we actually took a copy of that database?" I was like, "I did one yesterday." I was like, yeah, so it was before De DevOps and before all these yes. good practices. That was is... 2005, so it wasn't too far back. No, I'm not ancient, right? Right. So, I mean, so I'm, deploy. I'm yeah, but the, the <laughs> we're way, not going to get were, into that. But there were tools, yes. But yeah, there the were, deploy essentially was copied on an FTP share. That that's your deploy. It wasn't even that. It was actually sticking into a USB file and then running around the floor. And there was a oh, large wow. floor. It's, it's a manufacturing company, so every single PC that was on the floor had to be updated with the same piece of software. And I would run around and imagine I would spend two hours a day <laughs> doing that. And then by the time I would go back to the office, my you know the dev office. 
uh, we were, I, I would get a phone call saying, hey, something is broken. And that was my daily cycle. To the point I got so fed up deploying that, I said, you know what, let's rewrite everything in web. And I convinced my boss at the time to send me and learn some cold fusion. So many bad choices back then. Cold fusion was all the rage. So we rewrote most of the software in my one year there in cold fusion because I could not be bothered pushing software with USB sticks. It was like, I'll stick in one central uh, server and then everybody can actually. Like, yeah, like super heavyweight backend applications. Like cold yes, fusion yes. is so heavy. Yes. I remember trying it out and like, what was like 2007, <laughs> six? Yeah. And it was such a pain. Like one of the things that developers don't realize is how easy it is today with things like ASP.NET MVC, how much heavy lifting these frameworks do for you. Yes. That in the era of cold fusion, you had to write <laughs> manually. And it was a pain. It was, but uh, it came with some funky uh, add-ons. Like I, I remember creating charts on the fly by just dumping some data into an array and it would create the charts for me. And my bosses were so impressed by that. And that was after two days of uh, like an intense almost like a boot, boot camp of cold fusion for two days. And then I picked, I left with this giant handbook uh, of, you know, the recipes of what you could, or what kind of damage you can do. Now, uh, that was about a year and a half. I learned some basics there um, and we're doing everything because it was such a small shop. We're doing IT, uh, we're doing DevOps, whatever kind of label you can put on that kind of DevOps. Um, and we're you know, managing the networks. Uh, troubleshooting. So it was it was a great experience. That was my first job out of university. And then I was like, I'm ready to move on. So I was uh, offered to go and work for a company in Edinburgh, which was about 50 minutes from Glasgow. And uh, there I joined a company that was writing uh, software for the securities finance industry, which is a very niche kind of a sub market of the stock exchange. Not many people know their securities finance, but it is in effect you own some stock and some people want that stock and you can lend that stock to other people while you still own it and you get some collateral back. And that company I worked for uh, owned a very large percentage of the market because they, they started as a very nice, the, the, the guys that owned the company were London Stock Exchange uh, experts and they, they found that kind of a gap in the market. So they started getting all this data from, it was super data heavy. We were importing at the time, I remember something like, a, like 2 billion rows per day that was daily processing. And then we had all these random different processes back then um, to import all the data, sanitize the data. We had data analysts that were actually looking at it. That was very different to the data analysts that we have today, but it was the very early days of data analysis where they would actually open the CSV files, analyze the data, look for discrepancies in the data. Like if you had a million, let's say you recorded a million um, transactions in one file that didn't make any sense when everything else was 10 transactions, then they would sanitize and validate the data. Uh, so that company was super fun to work with. I, I learned so much because they had some really competent developers working there. And that was my first time actually moving to the full .NET stack. So everything was .NET, uh, ASP.NET, early days, not even MVC. Most of that was web forms with some third-party controllers. In fact, we rolled out all our controls ourselves until we decided to buy some. And I stayed there for six years. I started as, a, as an IT admin, uh, bringing all that experience from my previous job. And uh, after a year and a half, I was like, you know what? I'm fed up with managing servers and networks. And we managed everything. There was no cloud back then for us. So we had our server stack inside another room with some funds blowing into it. Sometimes the extension leads would just catch fire because we had so much load going over the normal building that we were housed. Um, 
I joined the software team and started writing software. It was so much fun and uh, we definitely enjoyed our time there. And at some point, I got fed up with going back and forth in Edinburgh. We had kids as well. So I was like, I don't want to be away from the kids for too long. So after six years, I took the plans and decided to uh, become a consultant. So I, I, I started up my own company. I think it's like a ride of passage. Everyone has to do that in their career. I, I started up a company, uh, which was a one-person company. I was consulting myself, uh, going from one contract to another. Uh, my biggest fear there at that point was, do I know enough to, to be considered an expert when I join a company to work as a consultant? So um, the, I would have done it probably sooner. And if I knew what I knew at the time that I joined, I would have probably jumped three years sooner. Because in effect, as a consultant, you, you jump into a project to help them quickly move into something or you have to do some work that nobody else wants to do, you know, the, the grudge work that everybody hates. But you get, you get paid a lot of money to do it, so you can't really complain about that. And um, you learn so much. So, you know, spending three months or six months or a year uh, from one project to another, you get different technologies, different kind of styles of development and teams, which was a lot of experience, right? If you work for one company, they have one way of doing things. And this could be great, but you don't know until you know. So, uh, you know, looking back, I was like, oh, my God, I made so many mistakes in my career. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that we didn't bring the house down in so many cases. Um, right. It's, the, it's the, the diversity of experience is super important. And I think this is yes. where I, I think I'm with you on that point where too often you hear about people getting kind of holed up in their way of thinking, the way of doing things, because that's how you've always been doing things. There's no other way. Yep. But then you get thrown in a completely different environment and you realize that, oh my God, all I was doing can be done so much differently, so much uh, better, some for worse, but you mm -hmm. learn. And that yes. learning experience is so, so key for anyone's career that I, yes. yeah, I can't overstate it enough how important it is. And there are different ways to achieve that these days. You don't have to move from one job to another. Like if you, if you join a big company like Microsoft or Amazon, um, you might not get exposed to different practices. Right. You can work in open source, you can work on other projects, you can pick up new things, you can read, study, go to conferences. So, uh, you know, working as a consultant was one way to achieve that back in 2012, uh, and it helped a lot. I, In the end, I knew what to ask for when I went to an interview. Interviews became more for me as a, a clearing uh, process of, do I really want to join this company and do I have what they want me to have, like the right skills? Like I, you can learn one of the technologies that they might be asking. So let's say you're a .NET developer and say, well, you have some projects in Node. Fine, I can pick up Node because that's, that interests me. But at the same time, they might say, welcome to our company. We're still using ASP Classic and uh, most of our staff is written with PHP. And you might like, oh, well, I, I don't want to do that. You also ask questions like, hey, what is your CI/CD pipeline? How often do you release software? Uh, what is the red tape? How much time am I going to be writing software over sitting in meetings? And once you start asking these questions, you find the right places to work for. Uh, and it became a lot more fun towards the end in my consulting career where I would just jump into a call or go for an interview in person back, back, back in the good old days where you actually turn up in a company and have this kind of a in-face in conversation. And uh, it, was, uh, it was fun because I would have two or three offers at the same time. I'd be looking around and like, I would choose the right one for my career. Uh, and it was not always about money. Sometimes, like I worked in the banking industry and oh my God, you, you would have to pay me billions of dollars. And sometimes I wouldn't even choose that because there was a lot of red tape. Like I, 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 for the one gig I, I ended up doing, first it was all tech. 
um, both in software and hardware. The reason like Windows 7 was the cutting edge in 2014 when everybody had moved on to Windows 8 back then. I was like, guy, and that was like, they were trialing Windows 7 when and everybody else was running on XP. The developers had like the cutting edge tech. It's like you're 10 years behind everybody else. And then we were writing WPF with really bad practices and uh, we couldn't upgrade to .NET uh, over .NET 2 back then. We were like, .NET 4 5 is, you know, has just been released, but we're stuck to all stuck. Some people love that. In fact, I had a consultant that uh, was working there. When I joined, he left, and then he did another gig and came back. I was like, why would you choose to come back here? Anyway, that was the first gig. In fact, I cut short. Like, I had a year, and in nine months, I was like, you know what, guys? I'm, I had enough, I think, of this one. Um, I'm jumping ship uh, after so- yeah, go I, I would be interested to know, like you contract, you had this contrast of like when you started your career, you joined a company where you had to be a jack of all trades and kind of use your full skill set, and you were put under probably a lot of heat, right? Like you got to get things done, and you know the senior developer left, and like you said, there were some bad habits that came out of that, and then you went to a well-established, obviously more structured experience, picked up some great skills there, and you're like, you know what, I can do this on my own. Yep. Uh, what were some of the biggest uh, takeaways from the time consulting like and challenges? So obviously you're running your own business too, right? You're yep. a businessman, yep. not just yep. doing the technical work. Uh, takeaways from consulting. I think uh, quite a few uh, experiences. First, you need to very, very carefully scope what the job would look like. So as I said, the, the banking contract, I jumped into that without really spending too much time in the details. And in the end, I wasn't happy um, working there, you know, if you don't get excited and inspired to go to the office every day, then you don't want to go. Um, it, it doesn't work out for, for you, at least for me, if there's no learning experience on my day-to-day stuff, if I'm not doing things I enjoy, and you don't always get to do things that you enjoy, but if if, if 80% of your time is spent on, on a call trying to convince the release team to actually add a NuGet package to the org so you can release your software that's been on hold for three months, then you can understand what kind of frustration that looks like. Actually, finding that person in the in the company took me a month. And I know so, that uh, my own time, like kind of breaking out and trying to do, you know, design and and web development on my own, uh, it was a challenge to like kind of curate clients. Um, that was like a whole different world that like yeah. I hadn't got gained from my previous experiences. So uh, that was like a real challenge, and it takes a lot of like invested time. Yes. Right. So like to like Network. dig into the company you're gonna go do some work for. Yep. And then sometimes those projects like they have secret scope that you didn't yes. realize and it kind of blows up <laughs> and you're like, Man, I really this client has been kind of a bigger pain than it was worth, honestly. Yes. yes. Um so I would say uh, t- a couple of things. Networking is super important. Building a, a reliable network that can um, vouch for you or they can you know, they can help you find your next gig is very important. Um and in the end, it ended up being like that, where I was well known in the, at least in the Scottish community, to be uh, called and say, you know, companies would say, come and work for us. And it was it was funny because exactly like that on my last gig, somebody called me and said, come and work for us. You know, we're a small company, but we do some really exciting things. I was like, I don't even know you guys. And uh, how, how did you find me? It's like, well, somebody has uh, recommended you. And we'd love you to come and work for us. And it wasn't even an interview. It was more a case of a, when do you want to start? And uh, what would you like to do if you join the team? So, you know, that's a real privilege if you if you ever find yourself in that kind of a state. And it's, it's weird me 
blowing my own trumpet, which well, is it's your true. reputation, right? Yeah. Your rep- reputation, you build yeah. out your reputation where people know you get shit done. Yeah. And when people know that, that I mean, that, that opens a lot of doors. Yes. And if a client comes to you and they're already excited to work with you, usually it's a pretty good relationship. That That is also an experience I had, which is like they came to me, mm-hmm. like they were knocking on my door, like, hey, we want to work with you. And you're like, okay, great. And yeah. they're like a little bit more open to like flexibility and like schedule right. and you know, the whole scope of the project just goes, seems to go a lot easier than you hunting them down and having to make a sales pitch. Yes. And that, that, that team, by the way, was probably one of the best gigs I had in my professional career. It was a small team of like, like 10 developers, which were all contractors. So super highly skilled, super well versed into the technologies. Always fun to jump into new things. There was great understanding. It was the first time I saw actually Agile working in the, in the right way. There was a lot of cohesion with the team. We would hang out for lunch together. We hang out together for coffees. Um, there was this camaraderie with the team. So finding that team as well, it's also very rare in the uh, software industry. And there were no big egos or whatever. Everybody was open to feedback. We had uh, some of these practices I actually took and worked with uh, customers uh, while I was at Microsoft. Like took some of the best things I learned there. And I would take them to other companies when we're building teams to explain to them how things can work better in certain cases. So uh, networking is very important. And the second biggest thing that really helped me in my career was community work, conferences, user groups, blogging, uh, and open source. These were probably more important to me than um, everything else. So it, about in, in about 2012, I saw a blog post from... Scott Hanselman, that um, it was about how, why you should blog or why you should be involved with the community. And um, at the time, I heard an interview uh, at, at, on .NET Rocks, uh, one of the podcasts. And one of the guys that was there was uh, John, John something, I can't remember his name now. And uh, he had a course about marketing yourself as a developer. So at that time, like very coincidentally, I, I read these two things and I got inspired in getting involved with the community. So, uh, Siley, I started blogging about things I was learning. So, started with a blog in 2012, which is still going strong today after eight years. And um, then in 2014, I decided to jump into public speaking, which was a lot of fun. It was it was just when .NET Core starting was starting, and back then it wasn't even .NET Core. It was named K. Uh, something, .NET K or whatever. So it was all the K commands. It was very early on. Everything was put together with string and tape. So my first ever talk was on introducing .NET Core, what would become .NET Core anyway, in 2000, late 2015, 14. And uh, it was for a local uh, .NET conference. And it was great. I got hooked. It obviously, went awful because I had my Mac with me and I was going to demo the .NET uh, solution running on a Mac, and I connected the Mac to a very old projector, and then the, the Mac just barfed out. So the, the Mac had a very high resolution. The projector could not really display that, and in the end, it just couldn't show anything. So I said to everyone, just gather around. Just come closer to the desk, and I'll show you on my Mac how it works. And the thing you will around. never say in 2020. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, scarily how you can Six feet apart. That. Yep. Everyone, take the circle, stand around. <laughs> or take turns, right? Take turns, uh, Anyway, yeah. everybody just gathered around, and I had my very first talk. I was terrified. In fact, I had just put braces on as well at the age of 37 or whatever. 
or 35, and it was awful. I couldn't even speak. In fact, I called my dentist the day before. I was like, can we take the braces off because I'm actually speaking in front of how many people and I have no idea what's going to happen. It's like, it's okay, you'll be fine. So with braces on and uh, with a Mac that wasn't working, I did my first ever uh, public talk, and I was hooked. People would just come back, come to me after my session, and they were like, yeah, that was amazing, man. How can we learn about more of these things? And I, I barely knew enough to scrape through the session. Like I barely made the, the demos work and I just had enough information to make it work, but uh, I loved it. And then started working with open source, started writing more, started traveling around the world to go and speak to uh, various gigs and um, stuff. So that led me to Microsoft. In fact, I made MVP uh, in, in January 2016. And uh, even though I started maybe a couple of years ago before that, I said I wanted to be an MVP. And everything I was doing was about becoming an MVP. It turns out that you can't work to become an MVP. You become an MVP because you do things that you love. So in the Microsoft space, if you are working with a certain tech, um, there are things that you can do, obviously, to be valued as an MVP. But uh, if you actually work with the community and love what you do, then that's, that's a lot more genuine rather than trying to do just the things that make you an MVP. So since I, I, I did... I spent two years working in the community and writing and traveling and working with Microsoft. Like I brought Microsoft to the UK, to Glasgow. because like, guys, the, the furthest you can go up is Manchester, which uh, apparently for, uh, for English people sounds like the north. That's the north for uh, English people. But the actual north is Scotland. So I was like, you know what? We need to make it through the border. We need to get here. So I organized a, a one-day event for introducing ASP.NET Core. And uh, I work with the Microsoft guys quite closely. Uh, big shout out to uh, Martin Bibi, who actually put me through for an MVP award. So 2016, January, I get an MVP award. And the goal for me was to work closer with these guys and organize a lot more things. But uh, within two months, Microsoft came and said, how about you come and work for us? I was like, yeah, that's surely a joke. In fact, they reached out to me via LinkedIn. And I thought, you know what? Someone's playing a prank on me. I'm pretty sure that that's not, that's not genuine. So I went uh, down to Reading, first time ever at the Microsoft office, walk in for my first ever interview at a very big corporation like that. And uh, it was terrifying and exciting at the same time. Uh, I finished the interview, I, I thought I did okay after passing two telephone interviews, obviously. And uh, I, I said to my, my, my manager-to-be, can I keep the lanyard? And then I took a picture outside the office. Like, I don't know if I'll ever come back here. Uh, so, and then so the guy... Yeah, so ahead. being an MVP, what was your what was your interview experience like? Like uh, it was it, it didn't make any difference actually. Although although they knew me as an mm -hmm. MVP, so when they reached out to me, they knew that I was working closely with Microsoft, and uh, they reached out to me and said, "Well, how about you come and join us?" I don't think being an MVP is something that really puts you uh, over the competition or ahead of the competition, to be honest. But being an MVP, you're probably an and Microsoft UK was smaller, right? So it's not like the, the beast that we have in the US where 60,000, 70,000 people work here. It was 5,000 people and you're bound to have your name heard, especially if you participate in events that Microsoft also tends to hang around. Uh, so it became, like I, I met um, one of their, back in the day we had uh, developer advocates in the UK. So not the CDAs that we have now, uh, it was actually dev advocacy and there was the, the manager, I met with the manager um, in one of the conferences. So we had a one-to-one -one chat and he said to me, we would love to have you join us, but you can't work from Glasgow. You have to move to Reading. And that was a big move. That was a 600 mm -hmm. mile move um, 
And I was like, well, yeah, but I can't really because my wife works in, in Glasgow. It would be very hard for her to uproot. And we just had kids. So it would be very hard for us to move in general. So uh, I thought that my dream was uh, cut there until Microsoft offered me a position as a premier field engineer. And I was like, it, take uh, consulting uh, from three months and cut it to one day. That was the experience. Being a PFE, that actually summarizes the, the whole experience. You go from one customer to another and you have to deliver on very different things. So one day I could be doing .NET, the next day I could be doing Node, then the next day I could be doing Cloud, the next day I could be doing VBA on some random system running on their environment. Sometimes we could be doing Azure migration, so take what you're running uh, here and run it on Azure. And you had to learn. That was a constant learning. It was non-stop. The pace was insanely um, fast. But I love that. I love because I was doing it for three months. I could actually cut it out into one day and, and learn and move on and learn and move on. So if, you're, if you like that experience, if you ever wanted to work in an environment that is hectic as hell, then being a PFE <laughs> is probably one of the best jobs out there. In fact, it was, it was a, a fantastic job. You pick up so much experience, but it's so condensed. And you choose your own gig. So as a PFE, you were never told you have to go somewhere. You, you'd be getting a call from a resource coordinator and say, hey, we have somebody that is looking to build X with X technology. Are you the right person? And I was a developer PFE, so I could literally do anything with any language as long as it could run uh, on one of the Microsoft ecosystems. So like Dynamics, although we had Dynamics uh, PFEs, I would never pass it, or SharePoint and uh, SQL and what have you. It was so much fun uh, being a PFE. The only reason why I stopped doing it at the time was the constant traveling. It was nonstop. I would leave the house on Monday morning and not come home until Friday afternoon um, because in Scotland, we didn't really have that many customers and most of the customers we had had centralized office in London. So I ended up going to London to speak to the same customers that were running you know, data centers or solutions in, for Scottish um, customers. So were you going on site um, for yes. most of these customers? Okay. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, you could do some things over Skype, but imagine now trying to, to inspire 15 developers to move to .NET Core or, um, you know, go, going in there and speaking about Visual Studio for six hours nonstop, like doing these demos over Skype, it, it wouldn't really work or Teams or whatever technology you want to use. Some things worked, like I've, I've done it, especially towards the end when I was getting ready to move to the US, I did it, but uh, I have to say that you know, being in the same room and getting the vibe from the, the people, like you could be saying something and people might be turning off. I, I remember I walked once, I was doing .NET Core and I spent two hours in the CLI, right? I did not even open the, the Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. And one of the guys just, just got so fed up that he got up and said like, what is this, 1985? Why are you showing us the command line when we could be using an ID? I was like, it's okay, it's okay. we'll move to the ID soon. But you know, getting this kind of vibe and experience and seeing people bored or whatever actually helps feed a lot with uh, the experience. Plus, sometimes it was a really confidential stuff. Like I worked with the uh, Electoral Commission when they were doing the Brexit stuff, so we had to prep the infrastructure for disaster recovery and go through all the scenarios. So uh, trusted advisory, that. I've been called into, hey, this customer is deploying 35 web apps from on-prem to the cloud tomorrow. Uh, they need somebody to handhold them. Can you please do it? Uh, so a lot of fun, but a lot of on-site. And that meant not a lot of family time for me. Mm -hmm. Very yeah, high pace. I feel like that, that is shifting, though. So oh, you yeah. see that you know yes. now, if before, you kind mm -hmm. of had to be there in person. You had yes. to have conferences and show it. 
nowadays, we're moving towards uh, on-demand learning, where I will learn at my own pace. The content yes. is getting so good yep. that uh, you know there is videos. There's and Microsoft is a good example, right? Microsoft mm -hmm. Learn, Learn TV, uh, yep. Docs, everything there. Everything is there, right? Like you don't, yes. you don't necessarily kind of um, you're no longer constrained by location. No. no. In fact, I've done more conferences in the last uh, conferences, podcasts, and uh, you know, user groups in the last three months uh, than the last four years because it's so easy. I just have to come down to my office uh, and uh, you know, open my PC and then connect to whatever software, Zoom, Skype, Teams, uh, Google Hangouts, or whatever they, they use, and just deliver. Uh, the only and the only challenge there is that people can be easily distracted where they're sitting in front of their PC watching something. Like I can easily open my email while I'm talking to you or you're talking and then you lose that kind of a connection. So uh, definitely a lot more opportunities with the new reality of COVID. Uh, definitely a major shift in how companies hire people and how they expect people to work. And there needs to be trust, right? You can't say, well, if you're not in front of your PC, I can't believe that you're working. And I had, in fact, I had a contract once where I interviewed and I said, hey, do you allow remote work? And the guy said, I looked at me and said, we expect our developers to be sitting on their desks. And I said, you do realize I could be watching eight hours YouTube videos and you wouldn't even know what I'm doing, right? So right. Uh, I expect that you trust me to, to deliver what you asked me to deliver. There are deliverables in software. It's easy to measure. Uh, but anyway. Um, but, but if anything, the, the shift also shows you that you can expose your content to a global audience. Yes. That's another constraint that we completely remove is the fact that if before I needed to be at a conference, right? Like I paid for an expensive ticket to be at Build or wherever, and now I can be somewhere in Vietnam. I can be in Australia. I can yep. be in South Africa. I can just connect, and I can see the exact same content as somebody from the United States or Canada can see for free. Right. Or, hey, even if you have a paid version, that it doesn't matter. But you, you get that global exposure that previously you can access communities that were out of reach. Because not yes. everyone from uh, a developing country can afford to fly to the United States to, say, the hotel, to get to a conference. But now, with that content being online, anyone can learn. It doesn't. I can be in Antarctica for all I yeah. care about. Yeah, and I think there's, there's that difference, though, between just learning and being there for the experience. And, you know, there's a element of serendipity when you actually are in person, right? Christos, I think you were mentioning this, like when you're in the room with 12 other developers, when you're doing the PFE role, like you pick up on body language or you're in the right place at the right time. And like, you can kind of act on that. Whereas like a digital only event, you kind of lose that element of serendipity and some of the cues that like traditionally you might be able to follow up on like, Oh, um, I want to chat with this person, right. That was maybe in the same session as me, um, that had a really good question, right? Like, they brought something up that was awesome at the end and like we can now talk about that and ruminate over it versus like, yeah, it's on demand all the time and you can get to it really easily. And maybe even you access it after the fact, but you don't have, like I don't have Din in the same room. I wouldn't even know yeah. he, right. he went to it, right? So well, it's like yeah. kind of pushes you together, right? It, it forces you, it's a forcing function for meeting other people. So two, two more things there. One is that being global and virtual also means that you get speakers that are a lot more diverse and from a lot of different countries. I don't have to fly to Singapore to go and do a session on .NET in 70 people. And, in, and like maybe a year ago, that, that's what my team used to do. They would fly around the world and speak to developers about identity. And you know, 
think about the time and the effort and the cost of doing that. Now, uh, we have a Twitch stream every Monday and Friday. We reach out a lot more people. We've reached out a lot more people in the last three months that my team has ever reached uh, throughout its history, right? Because we are there. And, and, and that's the other thing. Like being able to get the right talent from uh, all around the world it's, it's fantastic. As a speaker, I don't have to fly to Ukraine to speak to a conference. I can do it from the comfort of my room at 2 a.m. in the morning. Fine. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. It's a, it's a small price to pay, but I get to be But there. at least you go to bed in your bed at your yes, house. Yes, right? exactly. You don't have to be in a hotel. Now, the other thing that I definitely miss from this experience is connecting with people, making friends and hanging out after the session and being in the speaker's room or being out with the crowd and chatting to people about what they build and see how excited they are about what they do, helping them out in real time. I think if we nail that in the virtual space, if we manage to create that kind of a hanging out after my session, like a virtual space where people communicate and make friendships, it's very important. Like I met some of my like fanboy, like I was fanboys, like I met Scott Hansman in multiple conferences where we cross paths. We're in the same speaker's room for example and i would go and speak to him and you know we like i had lunch with him one day right having that opportunity is now gone uh, but i think we're gonna get it back because there's a uh, appetite and thirst for that and i think there's like some really awesome technologies out there right now that we could start diving into which all three of us are familiar with like vr platforms Mm -hmm. right and there's just like social spaces that can be created with vr it's like yeah, we were kind of thrust into this COVID era, but like I know Microsoft, for a matter of fact, is thinking about this. Like, how can we create digital spaces and virtual spaces that are enhanced by VR headsets and things like that? So yeah. I think we're going to see like a wave of that. It's going to be really cool. And you can augment those spaces. I mean, you can do so much more rich stuff that you couldn't do in a traditional yeah. physical space, right? Yeah. Uh, which yeah. could be really cool. Well, and it's certainly a, an interesting challenge also from the perspective that uh, I do agree with both of you that humans are social by their nature. Like it's how we evolved since, I don't know, like the stone ages, right? Uh, We're tribal, we need people, we need that social connection. And I don't think a Zoom meeting or a Skype meeting can ever replace that, right? Uh, There's a term for it and I know I've experienced it myself, which is uh, Zoom fatigue. You just have so many of these calls that it gets exhausting because this is not the same as actually meeting with someone in person talking to them, shaking their hand, and then saying, hey, let's keep in touch. Let's have a call later for another lunch or whatever. Um, and I also feel like things such as you know virtual reality, like they're interesting, but sometimes it almost feels like a Band-Aid because it doesn't truly replace the, that kind of in-person connection, right? Like seeing somebody's avatar in virtual space doesn't replace me <laughs> right. seeing Christos's and Courtney's face react to what I just said or yes. like are they yawning or are they bored it's just like it's an avatar that's moving and along like you're still behind that computer interface that has access to the entire world at your fingertips right so like it's right. really super easy to get distracted and like warped into a totally different focus mode right like your email pops up or a notification comes up freaking you know windows decides to reboot for the 13th time that day because it needs a, a patch right like I don't know but like yeah I totally agree there there's a gap that can be bridged um, yep. even with all our tech might, but we're also adaptable. So humans are adaptable and we'll find true, a way. True. Um, so you know what? It's, it's better than nothing, right? That's the other thing. Oh, like, for I sure. would rather take something over nothing. And, uh, we proved in the last six months that, or nine months now, I'm losing count. 
Eight it's months. been five years. It's been five Christos. years. It's what are you March, talking about? March day 185. <laughs> um, we proved that you know we can work remotely. We can still be productive. Uh, people like I, I know companies that would never think about what going remote, and then overnight they went because they had to, and just goes to prove that uh, we're adaptable and we can yeah, persist. We're fortunate to live in an era where technology exists. Like having the same uh, problem that we have now in 1918 is not the same right like when you're holed up in a house you can't go to the grocery store like there's no uh you know safe ways to go outside all these things like we still are we're still in a better position than we could be <laughs> so i mean it, it, even five years ago or seven years ago if that had happened we wouldn't be able to respond right. as well right. it, it's so, just yeah, no, for sure. And I know we spent, oh my gosh, 40 minutes talking about all these things. So love when time flies. But I want to yes. get to a topic that, uh, Christos, you're working on identity. Yep. Uh, and uh, for our listeners, I think it would be massively beneficial if you actually kind of walked us through what does identity mean, right? And so sure. we, we talked about your background, how you got yep. here, uh, and now you build identity tools. Because to me, when I hear identity, it, my first hunch is like, okay, well, so it's a it's a login that I can yes. go to my AD, to my Azure portal or whatever. Um, tell us more. Sure. Um, so Microsoft Identity is, is a, it's a platform that allows uh, developers and companies to, to do a few things. And we have so many facades in that space. But at the, at the simplest form, if you are a developer, then it's a login, logout kind of process. Like, how do I manage my... Uh, users and users' data without me having to think about too much. I don't want you to be an expert in OAuth 2 or OpenID Connect. Uh, most developers want to check a checkbox, say I added login and go to the next task. So um, our, our goal is to provide you with the right libraries and the right documentation, the right tools to integrate identity into your system and then move on to something else. We want you to be happy and we want you to do it securely and not end up in uh, Troy Hans, have I been pwned website with over 10 billion hacked accounts? In fact, Capcom got uh, hacked the other day. I don't know if you saw that. If you ever played games and you're an avid gamer, as I think, uh, Dan, but um, uh, then, sorry. Um, it, the, the whole point there is that we don't want developers to screw up. And I've, in fact, I wrote my own identity system back in 2007, just cringe about thinking about it. But if I go into a room and say, how many of you here wrote your own login, logout routines? Usually half the room just, uh, you know, Raise their hand right, because right. you've done it. And I don't want you to do that. So that's the first thing. But there are also these other things. Like every time you uh, log into Teams or Office or Dynamics or whatever, we have that kind of identity. So single sign-on, improving the user's experience so they don't have to sign into 20 different systems if they're in an organizational account. From a consumer perspective, if you're Walmart or if you're a small company that needs to manage uh, users, if you're writing a website for your cousin that wants to have a forum for his friends, then uh, we also have an offering for this kind of a business to customer like uh, Azure AD B2C where you just integrate uh, authentication there. But um, these days, uh, it's funny how we say Azure AD is neither Azure nor AD. Uh, there are so many things that um, run everywhere that need to access some backend system. So you have a web app that speaks to an API or a database. How do you secure access to these things without screwing up? And by screwing up, I'm not saying uh, you know, um, you know, having unencrypted data somewhere, but uh, you know, or or using HTTPS. But how do you configure that uh, connection string into your code 
how do you provide your API key to your code securely and you know, making sure that you're checking that into source control and getting hacked by that. So there's this kind of other feature there from Microsoft Identity that allows you to create secretless apps where we use a cloud identity to allow you to authenticate to certain systems and connect to other databases and other APIs without you having to compromise the security of your application. And developers don't have to worry about managing secrets in their code. IT pros don't have to manage their, you know, how are these secrets done? And, you know, we, we write code every day. We go into tweets every, uh, every week and we show people how to actually build this. In fact, uh, at .NET last week when we announced .NET 5, we did a demo on secure DevOps where we used uh, the things that would, so if you're running on GitHub Actions and you're deploying to an environment, how can you ensure that your pipeline does not contain any secrets? So not just identity, it's uh, like it is a Microsoft identity, but we cover so many different things and want developers to create codes uh, that are confident that you're not going to you know, be compromised one way or another. And for enterprise to be confident that their developers don't own secrets. So many stories out there, I could spend another two hours just saying how people have screwed up or how companies got screwed up by bad practices. So it's a very interesting role to be because we get to build anything with anything. We can build stuff that run on AWS with Lambda and still authenticate against Azure AD. We can build stuff that run on Google and authenticate against Azure AD B2C. In fact, I did a Firebase uh, blog the other day where you can authenticate Firebase users uh, using Azure AD as a backend. And that means that you can still use Firebase, but you have the security of uh, Azure AD. And just for uh, fun, I'll, I'll leave you with a, a fact here. At Azure AD, we do 30 billion authentications per day. That's an insane amount of Massive. authentications. If you think about it, and you know, we, you don't have to flinch. It can be one login per day. It can be 10 million logins per day in your app. You, know, you as a developer, you don't have, ever have to worry about scalability or security or performance. So that figure alone, I had to actually check with marketing and the, the product team to make sure that this is a number we can confidently uh, talk about. And it is, it's, it's reality and it's scary when you think about it. So I'm, I'm curious as a developer, um, you, you talked about some of the benefits and kind of to me, it, the, the biggest question is why should I care? So say I am the one that kind of, I build a database, my database is in a cloud, it's encrypted. I yep. use hashes, right? I don't keep plain text passwords. So I'm doing the security stuff and it seems at a surface level that it's yep. fairly straightforward, right? Like sure. create a user account, create some you know scopes for the user account and have a hash for password verification. Perfect. I'm good. Why should I use in this case an identity platform instead of hand rolling my own solution? Uh, first and foremost, you're way ahead of everybody else when you understand the difference between encrypting and hashing. So I've been to many companies. In fact, there are companies out there that you can, you know, they make the news, I'm not going to name names right now, but uh, that they insist that encrypting a password is secure. So even most of the developers understanding what the difference is like, is it's a major uh, challenge for us. And most people don't get it right. Now, okay, let's say you got everything right. You got your hashing, you got your uh, solution set up correctly, your data is encrypted, you roll your keys, awesome. How are you gonna add uh, multi-factor authentication to your solution? If you ever had to do that, you need to use a few services. You need to have a, an email service. You need to have a, a text message service. You need to make sure that the system is not going to be compromised. Right. Let's say you roll that yourself. Then you can do that. Absolutely fine. It will just take you a couple of weeks to implement, which is perfect. Now, how are you going to implement conditional access? How are you going to control who is logging from where? And how do you know if uh, my friend Courtney is not uh, logging in from Germany while he's also in Seattle? 
right? We, we a, a centralized delegated authentication system has all these built in for you as a developer. So technically from my perspective, especially if you're a .NET developer, it literally takes four lines of code to do all that and more. Then you have to think about scopes, then you have to think about permissions, then you have to think about roles. And let's say you got all of that right for your, the, your system. Now you leave the company and two years down the line, another developer joins and they say, hey, we need to create another website that does that. The chances are that we're going to create their own database with their own uh, authentication uh, system. So now you have two databases to maintain. And let's say Courtney works with us and then tomorrow he decides to move to another company. How are you going to manage access to the system? You have to go to these databases. You have to know exactly which databases they are. You have to remove him from those systems. With Azure AD, uh, you know, you have the right policy. So he gets his account removed and he's gone. He's, he can't access anything outside the company. I've been in companies where they never rolled their keys and there were people that could access admin environments two years after they left the company, which is scary when you think about that as a, as a standard practice because they don't think about these things. They go like, okay, I've got my login, I've got my uh, sign up. Another example, how, how are you gonna do um, incremental back off on, you know, how are you gonna protect against brute force attacks to your system, right? All these things that you start thinking, like you start piling on to what do I need to do to have a log, just sign in, sign out, right? I haven't talked about anything else, like resetting passwords or managing your accounts. It's a lot of work that we have 1500 engineers working day in, day out to solve so you can just add four lines of code and move on to the next task. If you want to do it, perfect. Just go and roll and spend four months understanding how OpenID connect and reading RFC documents. But I don't want you to be that. I want you to be successful in your job and fall in the pit of success. Uh, I, I by... think this is, yeah, you're getting to the very important points that I think are key for any developer, both enterprise, startup, independent developer, where uh, one, you simplify things, yep. right? So you just... You, there's experts in security, there's experts in storage and secret management that can help you kind of take that off your shoulders, do the work for you, uh, and kind of completely abstract you out. The mm -hmm. second thing is, and this is the fallacy where a lot of product managers, a lot of engineers fall into is, I'll build it myself. <laughs> when in reality, the value prop of your product is not the login, it's not exactly. the identity. If I'm starting a startup that handles, say, you know, helps people find remote jobs, my main value proposition is not login, yep. right? It's not the ability to like, oh, this was a stellar way for me to enter my password or username. Great. <laughs> awesome. I'll pay you now. No, because yep. I have to focus on the value proposition of the core product. And in this case, the identity is something that I'll outsource this to the experts that know this, that know how to handle this, that know the security implications, and I'll focus on the important stuff. And yes. I think that that's, that's the key here is that you allow developers to focus on the important stuff and get the boring out of the way. And not to say that identity is boring, but nope, for most developers, but for most developers right? Like it's, it's, yes, yes. it's just a matter of like, okay, I have to implement the login form and the password yes. recovery and forgot my password yep. and the 2FA. And it's just so much. Yeah. And getting it right. And also as a company, let's say you're a very successful startup. Now you have to scale your database as well as your, uh, the rest of the infrastructure for your users. As I said, we do 30 billion authentications and nobody bats an eyelid, uh, you know, day in, day out, you can come and log into your Teams account or your office or whatever you use with Azure Identity or Microsoft Identity and be successful. So 
Uh, yeah, you can deploy all these things yourself. You can roll them out yourself. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. And everything we do is built on top of open standards like OAuth 2 and OpenID Connect. But we want you to spend as little time as possible and be successful in that and move on to the next task because identity is like, you know, item 35 uh, in your 100 item list that you have to do as a developer. And uh, most of the people don't really understand or know well enough to do that or not willing to spend the time learning. Um, and we want people to feel comfortable that if they use our platform, they can do it well and quickly and securely and then move on to the next task. So it just, it your... just seems like a fundamental like linchpin that you want the specialists to do it for you. You yes. want them to be helping you, right? Like, take this off my plate, please. Yes. Yeah, I feel like exactly. security, security and, you know, credential management is definitely one of those areas where just like you should never kind of hand roll your own encryption, uh, you should kind of not risk with things like password management when you are not the expert. Now, granted, it depends on the use case, right? If yeah, you're writing yeah. just some like silly app that just, you know, is for fun, sure, whatever. But if you're serving millions of customers or hundreds of thousands of customers, tens of thousands of customers, you need a solution that scales. You need something that is actually going to support that. And you need something where you can continue iterating on customer needs because I personally have never heard customers say, you know what? Can you make the login form different? Like the product, sure, whatever. But the yeah. login form is what's bothering me. But it, now, it's also it's also fully customizable, right? So that's the other right. thing. Like if you're a company that's serious about making the identity work for your users and in a seamless way, single sign-on on your phone is such a fundamental thing for me these days, right? I never ever have to. Ninety percent of the apps I access on my phone are Microsoft. Uh, and it's for work or whatever, I never ever have to put my login in. And if, if a web page opens, right, that I have to log in for whatever reason, if it's part of my org, I don't have to put a password. In fact, I don't even know my password. I haven't used my password because I use Hello uh, on you know, Windows Hello on, on logging in. And sometimes I'm, I use my PIN and then I have the Authenticator app, which actually takes care of the 90% of the other cases. So for me to know my password is so rare uh, and nobody should know their passwords, but um, to know your password, especially for the domain account, it's so rare for me these days because Microsoft has got it nailed so well down. So as a developer, if you're running on, on whatever ecosystem, whether you're on the cloud or on-prem or some other provider, provided you use the ability to achieve the, what they need to do. Like if I need to check my email, I don't want to remember my password. I just want to check my email, right? If I need to go and log into the forum I used the other day with my cousin that we talk about football or whatever, and I, again, I don't want to remember the, the password. I remember I logged in with my Twitter account and that's all I have to remember and they will take care of everything else. So think about the ease of usability for your users rather than, and then for the developers, we made it so easy these days, honestly. It's like, I, I, I go to tweets and we do uh, streaming with other streamers and the, the thing that we hear most of the time is like, I didn't know this thing existed or I didn't know it was that simple to build something. Granted, there's some learning curve they have to, uh, to have with whatever you use, as with every API and every added product, you have to have some learning curve. But the learning curve is just enough to get you to uh, integrate and authenticate, and then you move on. That's all we want you to do. So putting my customer's shoes on, one of the experiences that I'm a huge fan of is uh, logging into Outlook.com with my Microsoft account. So this mm -hmm. sounds like an advertisement, but it's not. They, they really nailed the experience. And I think what I like is when I type in my, um, my email address, I get a notification in Microsoft Authenticator that says, hey, somebody's logging into your Outlook. We don't need your password, but can you confirm that it's you? Pick well, like one of the numbers, or I can use Touch ID on my iPhone. 
Yep. Uh, as a developer now, can I implement this in my own application so that I make it frictionless for my customers yes. with Microsoft Identity Platform? Yeah, it's all built in. In fact, it's just a few knobs that your IT team has to switch on and switch off, and then off you go. So from a, an implementation perspective, all you care about is bring the right libraries and dependencies into your project, whether it's Node, Python, Ruby, .NET, whatever you use, right? Whatever language, have the right uh, tools for you. Um, and even if we don't, like let's say, let's choose something obscure, COBOL. If COBOL has an OpenID Connect library, then you can actually write a COBOL uh, solution today that speaks to Azure AD and Authenticates or B2C. So uh, if, your, if your IT team has said everybody has to have a single sign-on, oh sorry, everybody has to have multi-factor authentication, if only these people uh, have conditional access to my app, then this will be uh, passed down to your users without you as a developer having to worry about how that gets implemented. So um, you as a developer don't really have to worry about too much. You just need a client ID and a, a tenant ID, i.e. Which, which Azure AD you're going to use or B2C you're going to use. And your, your users just get the, the beauty of the end polish product that you expect to get. I'm a big fan of pointless hackery. And so you gave me an idea for some of these pointless hack projects, which is writing a open ID library in COBOL. So I'll add it to oh my, my team next year. And I'll come see how team and far can I us. get. Right? I'll, with us, man. That's I'll, awesome. I'll come so back much. to you and say, remember <laughs> when you said that I can use Microsoft Identity with COBOL? Well, do make I sure have something search, for you in store? Make sure, you, uh, make sure you search first, because I'm pretty sure that somebody has already yeah, solved the problem. I would not be surprised if it exists, honestly. Like, I, I think in the past year, we've seen, you know, stories for VS Code. We've seen, like, all these projects that are like, why? But it exists. So I, I would not be surprised. Now, sure. from the perspective of kind of uh, identity, uh, what are some things that you learned in your career uh, working with the identity team that you would not have learned anywhere else? Like I'm generally curious because I think that brings a whole new perspective to mm -hmm. typical product manager because you're a product manager. And in this case, kind of what's your take on that? What are the things that you've learned in identity that would be probably harder to learn somewhere else? I have to say that the uh, learning curve for us was uh, much bigger than the actual consumer developer uh, person because I have to understand protocols. Like I have to understand what OpenID Connect is, what the flow looks like, and all the different flows like uh, code flow or credential flow or um, authentication flow, all the things that are used to implement the things that you, you don't really see behind the scenes. And I don't, I don't even, I haven't even scratched the surface in the six months I've been with the team or seven months I've been with the team. There's so much to learn, but um, for me to be able to do my job well, I need to understand quite a few more things than the uh, average identity developer, if you want to call that, or people that consume their service need to know. Uh, so, you know, seeing how much complexity there is behind the scenes, and our, our org is very transparent. There are a lot of emails that go out every single day about a new feature and new implementation. That's very important. I think as, as the org, the identity org, but also as Microsoft, I've seen a massive shift in how we prioritize customer feedback and customer needs over uh, what we build. So it's not what the PM thinks it's important, it's what the customer thinks it's important. And validating that with the customer before, or customers, before we go and build something, it's, uh, it's also uh, something that I've seen the org doing very, very well. And we're learning, right? We're not perfect. We're learning there's a lot of stuff that we can still improve, documentation, product, um, 
experience, user experience, uh, UI design. But I think as an org, we are um, getting better at uh, building these things. And then we're also getting better about talking about these things. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't talking, talked about tokens once today, right? I haven't talked about ID tokens or access tokens or anything like that, because I don't want you to know about these things. I want you to know about how easy we make it to implement and integrate with our solution. And making that story sound right, because you know these products are super complex and people are building some very complex stuff, but I don't want you to know about the 95% you're not going to use in your app. If you're only building a forum for your friends, then it's usually sign in, sign out, and maybe managing your profile. And that's all built into the product. Now you can do some super complex things, but if the time comes to that, you can reach out to us and we'll help you out. So getting the story right, getting the product right uh, is uh, things I've learned because it's the first time I'm actually working with a, a product team rather than working with customers directly in uh, solving problems. So, so my, my, role, my role is to tell the story well. So hopefully I've done a good job in or you're doing a fantastic job. I like, you know, this, this whole point of the show is for us to learn. So with that, you know, it seems like you're, you mentioned that you're active on Twitter. If customers or any of our listeners want to learn mm -hmm. more about identity, they want to more, learn more about the things that you do, where do they go? Where sh or where should they go? Well, they can definitely uh, follow me on Twitter or reach out to me on Twitter. You don't have to follow me to speak to me, but uh, uh, feel free to reach out at Christos Matskas, my uh, my. Twitter handle is not as uh, inventive, I would say. So naming things is hard. So I, I went with my name. Good so names are taken, <laughs> right? Like there's nothing True. that you can get on Twitter that is like one of those. Fun. I actually, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, we had our guest uh, not too long ago, uh, Jin Yang, and he has a uh, he has a three letter Twitter yeah. handle. Wow. Jay-Z, like, Jay yep. Yeah, that, that's one of those things where you're like, this is the OG Twitter handle that you yes. want to have back <laughs> in the day. So now I'm always on the lookout for like, what is the next Twitter that's coming up so I can register my name? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my full name, you'll find me there. And then, um, you know, we're Discord. You can reach out to me. I'll tell you all the details. And uh, if you want to see us do this thing live, uh, twitch.tv, 45 show. Um uh, then we we are there uh, twice a week minimum talking about identity. You can come and ask us question live. Like, people will ask random things. Uh, so as long as we can answer them and they're in the in the knowledge base that we have around the world, uh, then feel free to reach out to us anytime, and uh, we would love to uh, help you or you know point you to the right direction at least. Excellent. Well, Christos, thank you so much for being on the show, and we hope to talk to you sometime soon. We'll have to invite you for another episode where you could actually talk about tokens, <laughs> because I'm curious now. No, no. First, let's do the cabal with OpenID Connect. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yes. So, okay, now that it's my commitment, sure. Uh, well, all right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Till next time. Thank you for having me. Thank you both.